Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Steve Hendricks is a freelance reporter and the author of two previous books, one of which, The Unquiet Grave, The FBI, and the Struggle for the Soul of Indian Country, made several best-of-the-year lists. He's written for Harper's, Outside, Slate, Washington Post, and is here today to chat about his fascinating new book, called The Oldest Cure in the World, Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting. Welcome, Steve. So good to be with you, Jason. It's so great to have you. I I loved your book, and I think the title says it all in so many ways. You know, fasting is trending right now, but in fact, fasting has been around for quite some time. And in the book, you go into great detail of a very rich, history of fasting from around the world. So if you can try to briefly walk us through some of the highlights of the history of fasting, I could probably leave for three hours and come back because it's, it's such a fantastic storyteller and there, there's such a rich history. But in the next six, 10 or so minutes, can you try to fill us in on the very rich, fascinating history of fasting? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. You're right. It's it's very rich. It's 2,500 years of history. Um, fasting appears in the oldest writings that we have that uh, come out of the um, Vedic religions of ancient India and just sort of continues on in there. It appears in every virtually every single major religion in the world. It appears in virtually every culture. Now, that doesn't mean that it appears in the same way. Some, some places really embraced fasting, some places rejected fasting, and some places sort of thought, well, it's sort of a useful tool or not. The common theme in the early going was that fasting was used chiefly for religion, almost not at all for health. I mean, if you can imagine, you know, when you fast, if, if you take it severely enough and seriously enough and harsh enough, um, you will uh, possibly hallucinate. Even if you don't go that far, you will find that you're in a, a sort of altered state where people feel calmer. There's a very physiological basis for this. Um, you know, your heart rate slows down, your thinking changes slightly, uh, you may get a stimulation of certain um, neurotransmitters in your brain that cause you to feel euphoric uh, or even just more contemplative. So for people who, uh, you know, 2,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, even 1,000 years ago, were used to, in their, in their minds, regularly conversing with the divine, um, they would see in fasting um, a portal to another world. And so that's why um, I think it, it uh, prospered in so many religions. Um, so it's, it's hard to know exactly where to begin with this. Uh, one common theme um, was that in most religions where fasting took hold, it really blossomed and expanded. So in the Vedic religions of ancient India, they had these uh, ritual days every month called Upavasathas. Uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know how they pronounced it, but that's a good stab. Um, And these were days where they refrained every single month from uh, sex, from work, and from eating. And they did this in order to pay homage to uh, their hearth gods who had looked over them throughout the year. This would happen in all the households in, in this region. So this started out, we think, probably as just a few days a month. But as time went by, 
uh, people had this idea that, well, if a little bit of fasting makes you holy uh, or brings you closer to to your God, um, a lot of fasting must make you even holier. And so the days expanded. And so by the time you go through the Indian religions, you find that um, there are calendars in Hinduism that have, you know, 100, 120, 140 days of fasting uh, every single uh, year. Um, this wasn't necessarily abstaining from all food for, let's say, 24 hours. Um, it was quite often abstaining from certain foods like meat, may have been dairy, could have been uh, sort of luxuries like desserts and so on. But the tendency was for fasting to grow and expand. And so we see this in the history of Christian fasting and uh, as well. Um, originally, Christians didn't, you know, take to fasting with any sort of... Um, great uh, desire. Um, Jesus hardly emphasized fasting, um, and his 40-day fast in the wilderness when he was being tempted by Satan was taken more as uh, something that was instructive. It was a metaphor to early Christians, but eventually Christians decided that fasting could be a way to tame the desires of the body. Um, and once, and, and you know, the more you tamed those desires of the body, the more you, again, became closer to this, you know, holiness that, that was sought. So very early on, not long after uh, Christ's death, um, fasting took on this really um, just uh, enormously important place in Christianity. And you, you, so you had uh, the, the way this sort of was most known to people was in these almost heroic figures, starting with the desert fathers and mothers, these monks who and nuns who went out into the deserts of Egypt and Syria and Palestine. And they would um, do many kinds of ascetic practices. These might include whipping themselves. These might include standing and you know, all of these uh, very stressful positions. It might include going without uh, clothing and hot weather or cold weather, and it very definitely included fasting. Um, and so many of these uh, desert monks took these practices to very extreme lengths. Um, and although most average Christians didn't do that, they themselves um, sort of looked up to these uh, heroic fasters as kind of an ideal. And fasting spread throughout lay people in Christianity as well. And this carried on for you know thousands of years. And this is how we get Lent, for example, which started off as a two-day commemoration uh, before Easter and gradually expanded and expanded and expanded, again, on this principle that the more you fast, the holier you are, and became a 40-day you know, famine, in effect. Um, it's how uh, Christians for oh, about 1,500 or more years um, came to fast at least two days a week on Wednesdays uh, and Fridays, and then in some places also on Saturdays. Um, and as this occurred, uh, you also eventually got a resistance to fasting. So by the time you get to the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and so on, you find this really interesting interplay where the church is pushing fasting, you know, uh, as, as hard as it can. Uh, but there's this resistance among a lot of lay people and even among a lot of monks and nuns. Uh, who would devise all these very clever ways to get around fasting, and they would bend the rules however they could. 
which eventually very famously led to the dispensations of the Catholic Church, where you could simply buy your way out of fasting. Uh, that's how the uh, famous butter tower of the Rouen Cathedral in France uh, was built. It was funded on these dispensations that rich people paid to get out of fasting. So uh, for the last you know, 500 years or so, there's been more of an um, interplay in between uh, the people who would, um, I should say, I'm not sure if interplay is the right word, but more resistance from, from lay people to fasting and to religious fasting. And so the religious fasting has gradually withered and withered and withered away until we get to today where most people fast for health, which brings me to the one other piece of history that I didn't mention, which is fasting for health. It did exist. Uh, it was not a huge uh, uh, part of most traditions. It arose um, chiefly with the Hippocratics. Um, so uh, there's, there's this one reason I ended up writing this book and one reason I went into the history was so much of the history of fasting as told today, I thought had been sort of mistold. And one of the things, one of the myths out there is that the ancients particularly the ancient Greeks, Hippocrates, Plutarch, Pythagoras, Plato, they all knew about fasting and they knew how to do it. They knew what they were doing. And somehow we lost this ancient medicine. Nothing could be further than the truth. Most of those folks, we have no idea if they fasted at all. If they did, it was only haphazardly. They hardly knew what they were doing. Um, but there were a few instances here and there where a few of them were getting glimmers, where they did sort of learn about, um, you know, through trial and error, that if you did fast for the start of an illness, for instance, was a common practice in a few places in time in ancient Greek and ancient Rome, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, that they would, um, that people tended to get better than by applying the normal medicine of the day, which was bleeding people or giving them purgatives to make them uh, vomit or emetics to make them poop, um, and uh, all these, and, you know, all these sort of almost barbaric so-called medicinal practices that people used. When compared with, well, why don't we just not do anything? Sit back, let people fast, and see what happens. We, we know today that fasting can um, initiate several repair processes that are in fact helpful in some acute illnesses. So it's not a surprise that when you're reading some of these ancient texts, some of them do say, uh, you know, so-and-so got a fever, fasted him for three days, fever went away. Um, so unfortunately, um, while there was a start of a fasting medicine that might have been nourished and might have grown over the years uh, if uh, circumstances had turned out right, unfortunately, history didn't turn out that way. And most of these sort of embryonic um, you know, forays into the medicine of fasting got crushed by, frankly, you know, witch doctory and quackery. Um, because at the time there was a, um, a taboo for maybe 1,500 years uh, up until about maybe 500 years ago, there was a taboo on looking inside the body. You couldn't do dissections. So there were these wild guesses about what made um, illness work and wild guesses about what was the best way to treat these illnesses. And, you know, essentially what was decided on was 
um, bleeding people, putting leeches on them, opening their veins, um, making them, uh, giving them, you know, purgatives and emetics to have uh, vomit and diarrhea and try to cleanse their systems that way, blistering their skin. And that medicine, if you want to call it that, triumphed over fasting. And fasting really went, uh, was pushed to the margins. It never entirely disappeared, but it was pushed to the margins. It wasn't explored. It wasn't understood until doctors started looking into it with some earnestness once the age of reason returned. And so about a couple hundred years ago, we start seeing the first doctors who made a fairly sincere practice of fasting their patients, and they began to get good results. And that's how we have, in a nutshell, gotten to where we are today. Great job trying to summarize. <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, getting to where fasting is today and fasting as a therapeutic can you talk a little bit about Henry Tanner, who many refer to as the father of modern fasting? Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, uh, that title for him. So Henry Tanner was an eclectic doctor. Uh, eclecticism was a form of um, alternative medicine outside of the medical doctor MD's uh, medicine, uh, probably akin to a naturopath or something like that today. And he had in 1877, he was living in Minneapolis and he had a series of ailments. He had a heart condition, a stomach condition. Uh, he was having kind of a nervous breakdown because his wife had left him for the final time. Um, and the, the story goes that he decided to uh, repair to the home of his one of his uh, eclectic doctor friends and fast for however long it took to uh, either cure himself or to wither away and die. And he seemed to be, by one telling, indifferent to what the outcome was. At the time, it was thought that uh, you could only live about seven to 10 days before you, without food before you would, in fact, die. So he passed the seven to 10 day mark uh, during this fast of his and noticed one by one that his ailments started falling away. And so he, he was inclined, they all sort of fell away by the, I don't know, 10th or 11th or so day. Uh, and he was inclined to break his fast and, uh, and eat food, but he decided, well, wait a minute, uh, if, I'm, if I'm feeling better, the longer I go without food, what would happen if I went even longer? So he just experimented and continued to fast. He felt himself getting stronger as the fast went along. He resumed his long daily constitutional walks that he had usually taken. I mean, these were five, 10, 15 mile, you know, walks. Um, these weren't just, you know, little strolls around the block. He ended up fasting, I believe it was 41 or 42 days. Um, and he was not inclined to advertise this feat, but his, his friend, his fellow doctor, uh, wrote about it and um, was widely, the both of them were widely ridiculed in the local and to the extent it was out national press for being, you know, uh, imposters and liars and uh, in, the, in Minneapolis for bringing shame upon the Twin Cities. Uh, and it all might have died there, but in 1880, he had an opportunity to uh, stage a public fast, a sort of repeat performance uh, in New York City which he did literally on a stage in a hall um, in, in the city. Um, and the occasion was a, a feud that was going on between this doctor and this supposed psychic who had supposedly gone you know, years without 
eating. She was, in fact, an imposter. But Tanner said, I will come to New York. I will do the fast and stand up for her honor and the honor of fasting. And he did, and it became a sensation. I mean, this cannot be understated. This was reported in literally every newspaper of any significance, not just in the United States, but in England, in France, across Europe. There are you know, newspaper reports in Africa and in India. His fast captivated the world. People were just stunned that you could go this long without food. Um, he unfortunately didn't have any illnesses to cure this time in New York. So his claim that fasting actually could be used as a, as a therapy, as a curative uh, tool, uh, carried no weight. No one believed him. But the mere fact that you could go longer than seven to 10 days without eating and survive, and he did indeed survive, um, just uh, electrified people. After his fast, fasting faded away again, but he his fast had planted seeds and repeatedly over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, other advocates of fasting would spring up and sort of carry on the torch. And that is in fact how we have gotten to this stage where we are today, where it is in fact a therapeutic tool. Do you remember what year that, that was? His fast in New York was 1880. Wow, wow. So if we... Fast forward to today, there are various views on fasting in terms of a healing modality. And so you've got the you know, water fast, if you will, which essentially is what you're describing, where someone goes an extensive period of time with basically just drinking water, maybe some supplements or, or something like that, which you know, Dr. Alan Goldhammer does at the True North Clinic, which we'll get into. You talk about him in the book. Then you've got another type of fast where you're having very minimal amounts of food over about a week window. Dr. Walter Longo is a big proponent of that. We've had him on the show and we'll, we'll talk about him as well because you, you reference him in the book. And then you've got you know, the intermittent fasting where there is a compressed eating window, which many people subscribe to today, including myself, where you're eating for, for eight hours and you're fasting for 16, or maybe it's eat for six, you fast for, for 18, or you do the circadian fasting where it's 13 and 11 and so on. And so if you look at where we are today and the various types of fasts, what have you learned in terms of how we should be viewing them as either a healing modality or a proactive tool in our health and well-being toolkit for longevity? It's certainly both, and that's the beauty of it. It's, it doesn't have to be either or. I think the science is just overwhelming now that um, it is at one and the same time a preventive and a repair mechanism for those who are already sick. So, you know, if you already have diabetes and you wish to reverse your diabetes, fasting can be a very powerful tool in doing that. If you don't have diabetes and you want to prevent yourself from getting diabetes, fasting can be a very powerful tool as well in helping you preventing, helping you not get diabetes. So, you know, it's definitely both. Now, and, and the interesting thing is all of those modalities that you mentioned have a place. Now, I'm not saying that all forms of fasting do. I think some are, frankly, uh, a little risky. Um, some of it's maybe a little quackery, but most forms do. So, you know, broadly speaking, the way I think of fasting is it can be split into two categories. One is daily fasting, 
as I call it, what a lot of people call intermittent fasting, which is this time-restricted feeding window where you're eating for six or eight hours a day, let's say, and you're fasting for the other 18 or 16. And then there's prolonged fasting, which is fasting for more than one day. Um, So, and typically it's more like a week, two weeks, even up to six weeks in some fasting clinics under medical supervision. Uh, And within those, there are various ways of doing it. You're absolutely right. You can, for instance, do water-only fasting, as they do, for instance, at Goldhammer's True North Health Center in Northern California. Or you can fast the way that fasting is done in Germany um, at most uh, fasting clinics there, which is to take about 250 calories a day of vegetable broths, which is just enough to keep you. It's not so many calories that it bumps you out of the fasting metabolism. So you stay within a fasting metabolism, but it's enough calories that it gives you energy to go for hikes or do yoga or whatever it is that they do at most of these clinics. Um, And then there's also, you know, you can do a, a, a four or five days fast yourself each month of on water only or on 250 calories or whatever, or you can do what you mentioned, Walter Longo's, um, uh, what does he call it? A fasting diet, right? Prolonged with the brand name. And, and that's more calories. It's more sort of like reduced eating each month, but it mimics a fa- some of the fasting metabolism. Now there's a lot to think of here and, and, and I would say there are probably maybe two principles to just keep in mind. As a general rule, if you are fasting on water only, you're not doing the, you know, the prolong the food thing from Walter Longo, you're not doing the German, you know, 250 calories a day. If it's just water only, you will probably initiate healing mechanisms much more quickly. They will be much deeper. Um, And, you know, if you have something that you need cured, it will get cured or at least improved um, if it's something that's amenable to being improved by fasting, much more quickly than if you're taking food. So can we, can we let's stay on that one. I'm sorry to interrupt, because I, 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 you know, so so if we just stay on water, because look, many people listening are going to say, "Wow, that's extreme." Uh, and so, but and it is, <laughs> it is an extreme. But 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 sometimes, if you're talking diabetes, if you're talking obesity. Uh, those are extreme diseases that require ex- an extreme plan of attack. And so with that said, can you just, let's just stay on water and then we'll move on to, you know, we'll call it Longo slash Germany, minimal calories, and then the, the restricted eating. If we start with water, you mentioned science and studies, like what, what, what's, what's been the most compelling in terms of science for water only? Yeah, so so I will preface this by saying so that much of the science has just exploded on fasting in the last 10 years. However, it still lags far behind, say, a pharmaceutical, you know, intervention, right? Because who's going to fund a fasting study? These fasting clinics don't have a lot of money. So unfortunately, we don't have what we should have. I call for in the book at one point, we don't have a study that compares water-only fasting to, you know, fasting with calories, right? Um, To say that this is absolutely better for these diseases or not. That said, there have been some very impressive studies, some of them done by True North, Goldhammer's group out in California. Um, To me, one of the most impressive is uh, their work on blood pressure. Um, 
something like 50% of all American adults have high blood pressure. Uh, we tend to think of it as this garden variety illness, but it's the setup. It's, it's narrowing and hardening your arteries um, for uh, uh, heart attack, stroke, dementia, you know, diabetes, any, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible disease. And by the time you're, you know, in your seventies, I think something like three quarters of Americans have it. The American Heart Association, the National Kidney Foundation will tell you that, uh, high blood pressure, uh, cannot be treated, um, or cannot be cured. It can only be managed. It's an incurable disease. But in fact, they've done uh, a couple of studies, uh, as long ago as, oh gosh, I believe, almost 20 years ago now, um, at True North showing that, um, every single patient. And so I should go back and say they didn't cherry pick patients. They just studied 184 patients who walked in the door with high blood pressure, took every single one of those and found what happened when they did a 10 day was on average, a 10 day water fast. Every single one of them, their blood pressure dropped. The average drop was 37 over 13 points, systolic over diastolic. Wow. That was the average drop. That is the largest drop that has ever been recorded in peer-reviewed literature of, for any therapy, any intervention at all for high blood pressure. People with the worst high blood pressure, stage three hypertension, fared the best. They were the, they got, I believe it was a 60.60 drop in their systolic blood pressure in just an average of 10 days of fasting. Virtually everyone, I think it was about 80% of people who had high blood pressure were able to normalize their blood pressure, get it down to 120 over 80. Every single person in that study uh, had to, um, go off their blood pressure medication because if they'd stayed on it, it would have pushed their blood pressure too low artificially. So, and, and the, the best thing is, so scientists for the last century had sort of noticed the very, only a very few paid attention to fasting for high blood pressure. But when they did, what they noticed was when you take people um, and you fast them, their blood pressure will drop. But when you feed them again, their blood pressure goes right back up. So, uh, Fasting for blood pressure was sort of thought of as this kind of parlor trick or something that wasn't very useful. Well, what Goldhammer and, and other fasting doctors before him said quite reasonably was, well, if their blood pressure, their high blood pressure goes down, when we take the food away, maybe there's something in the food that's causing their blood pressure to go up, right? So doctor after doctor in country after country, I mean, here in the US as well in Europe, primarily in Germany, over a period of about 150 years, experimented with, well, what do we feed these people when we break their fasts? And what they came to, every single one of them almost without exception, came to basically either a vegetarian or a vegan diet. And that's what they use at True North. They use a, a very minimally processed uh, vegan diet that's free even of added salt, added oil, added sugar. It sounds extreme. Uh, it actually isn't as extreme as it sounds because after you fast, your taste buds adapt and food that didn't used to taste as, as good tasted good again. After a fast, a water fast, after 10 days, when you have celery, you can taste the salt in the celery. In fact, when my wife and I were fasting there, she broke her fast and they broke her fast on a, a, a glass of um, celery and watermelon juice. And she almost couldn't drink it because it was just too salty for her. 
So this neuroadaptation of your taste buds is one of the benefits of a water-only fast, and that is a deeper benefit that you get that you don't usually get when you're doing these sort of you know modified fasts where you're taking in some calories. So anyway, that uh, high blood pressure study was um, published in, again, peer-reviewed literature a couple of decades ago, and yet no one knows about it. So we have what, and there have been some follow-ups that have confirmed that, it was not a randomized controlled trial. Those are very expensive to perform. And, you know, Goldhammer was working at that time out of a, you know, ranch house out in um, the outskirts of Santa Rosa, where he had, you know, six patients at a time. He's, he's now up to seeing 1,500 patients a year. He's got a big complex. But the long and the short of it is um, you would have thought that the American Heart Association, similar groups would be all over this. Instead, they push medications. Uh, I raised the question as to whether that's because they take money from the people, you know, uh, making those blood pressure medications. Um, but we have what seems to be a cure for high blood pressure. No one knows about it. It's powerful. Maybe Poland Spring, Avion, or, or one of the, the big water companies will, will fund it. Uh, so extraordinarily powerful. And so if, if we move on to, let's say, Longo. We move on to Dr. Walter, Walter Longo. We've had him on the show and his work. In your opinion, what, what is some of the most powerful research you've seen that Walter's putting out on his fasting method? Yeah, so, so much. So Longo is a professor at the University of Southern California who's really the world's leading researcher into fasting. Uh, it's hard to know where to begin. He's done so much that's so great. He does a lot of mice, though. I know he does a lot of mice, and I'm always biased to humans over mice. He loves mice. Yes, he he does love mice, and and you can understand it, right? Because how do you uh, run a trial where you fast someone periodically, let's say four days every month for three months every year for 80 years? <laughs> but he may have luck on the west side of LA. Right. <laughs> so um, I think one of the most powerful findings of Walters is the, um, the strength of fasting as used against cancer. Now, uh, I, I begin my book with uh, an anecdote uh, about a woman who uh, I believe and she believes and um, the publishers of the British Medical Journal, where her studies were, these case studies were published, seem also to believe that she was cured of her follicular lymphoma, which is a form of cancer that affects, affects the lymphatic system, by fasting, by water-only fasting at True North in Northern California. Um, however, it's important to say that the evidence suggests that fasting does not eliminate most cancers. See, when you're fasting, you're not taking in glucose. And glucose is what most tumors just love to feed on. So you take that away and some of them will shrivel and die. Most of them, however, can find other pathways um, to, to thrive. So using fasting as your only tool to defeat cancer does not seem to work for most cancers. But what Walter did was, you know, he realized that there were all these repair mechanisms that were, you know, unleashed um, and protective mechanisms also that were unleashed with fasting. And the way he tells it is, you know, everyone at the time that I started my work into fasting for cancer, cancer researchers were looking for a silver bullet. They were looking for something that would go out and kill all these cancer cells. And what he discovered was what he calls not a magic bullet, but a magic shield. 
um, whereby fasting. See, when you go into when you go into a prolonged fast, um, and by prolonged, I just mean even two or three days. Um, your your body says, "Oh well, we're not taking in any more inputs. This is an awfully good time to do some repairs." And so the cells protect themselves and they reject inputs that are coming in from the outside, and they just you know basically lick their wounds to to choose a metaphor. And so what he found was when he subjected cells to chemotherapy, when he fasted those cells, the fasted cells rejected the chemotherapy. The cancer cells, whose mantra is grow at all costs, take in any input whatsoever, would just soak up the chemotherapy. So what, what the metaphor he uses is fasting was like a command. Imagine you have two you know, armies on a plane battling each other, your healthy cells and the cancer cells. Fasting is a command to the healthy cells to kneel down. And then you can throw in the chemotherapy, which is like a, you know, machine gun or something that just mows down all the cancer cells. So fasting by protecting healthy cells should, in his theory, allow us to uh, give more chemotherapy, killing more of the cancer, and um, protecting the people who, who have those healthy cells from all the side effects, or at least many of the side effects of chemotherapy. So they would have less nausea, they would have uh, less vomiting, they would have fewer headaches, they would have less fatigue. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened in a Petri dish, that's exactly what happened in mice and rats, and it's exactly what has happened in humans so far. The, the caveat is this, we know from Balter's excellent studies that if you do a fast of um, two or three days while you are taking your chemotherapy for each you know, chemotherapy treatment, and the same seems to also be true of radiation, by the way, and immunotherapy, if you do this, you do indeed have fewer side effects from the chemotherapy, which by itself is a huge boon. Most people who fast during chemo say, when asked, would you do this again? They say, yeah, absolutely. I would do it again in a heartbeat, particularly those who've gone through the, the chemotherapy without fasting. They love it. It seems likely that it's going to also allow the administration of more uh, chemotherapy that will kill more of the tumors. We don't know that for sure, though. So I don't want to promise that this is going to, you know, kill more of the tumors, but that's the way it looks like it's headed. It's certainly from the early trials, and we're in the early stages yet, from the early trials that have been done, at a minimum, it doesn't interfere, it doesn't hurt, it's not causing the cancer to grow more or anything like that. So this is enormously promising by doing a simple modified fast where you're taking a few hundred calories for three or so days during your chemotherapy. We could not only minimize the side effects, you know, Kill more cancer, save thousands, uh, I don't know, millions possibly of more lives. Yeah, it's extraordinarily promising. And so if we talked about the, the water fast and fasting where you're eating a little bit something, let's go to like the, the, what we interpret as intermittent fasting today, where we have the compressed eating window. And so what's the most compelling research you've seen about the compressed eating window intermittent fasting? Yeah. So I think the best research that's being done is being done by this uh, professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham named Courtney Peterson. So uh, we have now known for a little while, and I mean just a little while, let's say five, no more than 10 years, that eating in these narrow windows every day, which virtually everyone can do, it's healthy, it's safe, 
Um, it's recommended for virtually everyone, unless you have some weird condition where you have to eat every hour for 16 hours or something, to eat within a six or eight, or if that's too narrow for you, even you get benefits even from a 10 or 12 hour window. You get more benefits the shorter you go up to a point. Um, if you're trying to cram everything in in two hours, that may be too hard on the body. But you know, most humans graze across, studies have found, 15, 16 hours a day even. Um, and so narrowing that window as much as you can will yield some benefit. What, and, and the reason is this, I'll give some background before I get to Peterson. So it turns out, I mentioned that when your body goes without food, it goes into this repair mode. It starts doing repairs that, you know, our body is making repairs all the time. DNA gets damaged and the DNA needs to be repaired and our body will try to repair it. But our body only does this most of the time at a very, very low level. That's because it's too busy doing all the things that we do that make up life, including uh, especially digesting our food, processing the nutrients and putting them all to work, making our thoughts our thoughts and making our muscles move and whatever else. So those repairs step up when we don't eat. And that's not just true of a week-long, two-week, three-week fast or something like that. It's true also, and this is why the time-restricted feeding windows are so powerful, it's true also in this daily fasting where you narrow your window. Now, here's the catch. The catch is those repairs don't start as soon as you stop your last meal. There's a metabolic cost for the body to, um, to switch from this normal I'm processing all the nutrients mode to repair mode. And the body doesn't want to make it doesn't want to make that switch to repair mode if you're just gonna, you know, stick a chocolate bar or a banana or, or even a cup of coffee, because caffeinated drinks will to some extent break a fast as well. It doesn't want to do that if you're gonna, you know, just stick that in your mouth two hours later. So the body waits. It waits six hours according to the best research we have, which I think is in this case being done by a researcher named uh, Sachin Panda at the Salk Institute in San Diego. And what Panda has found um, and other researchers have uh, uh, replicated and found as well is that at about six hours, these repairs start to pick up. Now, they increase at a sort of steady rate the longer you go into your fast. And by 12 hours since your last meal, you get into this sort of exponential rate of repair. So imagine most people, you know, the Panda's uh, got this smartphone app where he tracks people and, you know, when they're eating. He finds that most Americans and actually I think most people around the world are eating about across 15 hours a day. So the average person is only getting a nine-hour fast, which means they're not getting to substantial repairs until six hours into that nine-hour fast. So they're only getting three hours of repairs. They're never making it to 12 hours and getting those exponential repairs, right? So someone who eats within a six-hour window is getting an 18-hour fast. At six hours, they go into repair. 12 hours into it, they go into, you know, exponential repair, and then they're getting a whole nother several hours, right, of that exponential repair that other people just aren't getting. So that's why these time-restricted eating windows are so powerful. Now, the big surprise to me when I was doing the book was, so I had, you know, uh, eaten in a, a time-restricted eating window for 
oh, I don't know, a couple of years when as I was going along working on this book. And then I came across Courtney Peterson's work, who, I, as I said, is now uh, Alabama, Birmingham. So what Courtney Peterson did was she looked at a bunch of the research that showed there's a, there's a very long research, which, which I won't go into, a long history of research into when the best time of day to eat is. Uh, and it turns out we are primed by our circadian rhythms to process foods most efficiently in the morning and early afternoon, which was a huge disappointment to me because I was always a breakfast skipper. Um, one of the appalling things about doing research like this is, I, I mean, I follow the science. So um, when I learned the rather convincing science that it was no longer healthy to um, skip breakfast, I stopped doing that. But that was how I, and that's how most people, I think, practice a time-restricted feeding window. You skip breakfast, you eat your first meal at 11 or noon or something, you eat dinner at you know six or seven, and you're you know done with your eating window at eight. Well, what Peterson said was, well, wait a minute. If we know from people who are eating regularly, not doing a normal window, that it's vastly healthier to um, eat to eat, you know, to eat breakfast, to put most of your calories at breakfast and the way they do in a lot of places in Europe and in lunch, and then just eat a light dinner. If that gets better health results, wouldn't we get better health results if we shifted people's eating window, not from this noon to eight thing, shifted it earlier in the day, had them eating, you know, say from eight in the morning till two in the afternoon or nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, something like that. So she ran these uh, very meticulous, just brilliantly controlled, um, randomized controlled trials. Um, she did one that was a four-day trial where she had um, people hooked up to, you know, continuous glucose monitors and and put them in a, you know, metabolic chamber where she could, you know, measure what was coming in and out of out of them. Then then she did another longer trial that was, you know, five weeks long. And to make a long story short, she found that when um, when the eating window was shifted to that early time of day from, you know, roughly eight in the morning till two in the afternoon, she used a six hour window and it was allowed to fluctuate some. It, she basically just had them start the volunteers in, in the trial, start eating within an hour or two after they woke up. Um, the, their repairs almost instantly took off. So for example, I'll give you two examples in that four day trial. Um, her, uh, she had, uh, she, she tested for um, the activity of CERT1. CERT1 is a gene that's known as the longevity gene. There is a protein that you can measure as a marker of it. It's important because it's associated with keeping the telomeres on the ends of our DNA healthy. Telomeres are like those tips on the ends of our shoelaces, and they keep similarly our DNA from unraveling. Uh, there uh, are a uh, certain one is also involved in um, antioxidation, which is, um, you know, these free radicals get turned loose by chemical processes in our cells and they oxidize uh, parts of our cells the same way that rust oxidizes, you know, the metal on a car. So after just four days, this longevity marker, the activity of this uh, gene, it was expressed more, increased 10%. After just four days of switching to um, this early eating window from a later eating window, uh, even more impressively, there's a marker for autophagy. The gene is called LC3A, and there's also an associated protein. Autophagy comes from the Greek words meaning eating the self, and as a lot of your listeners probably know, it's the body's recycling process. When we have old, worn-out parts 
Um, rather than just throw them all away, our body does this ingenious uh, process of breaking them down and recycling them and sending them off to become these, these components of these old worn out parts to become new, healthy, vibrant parts. Um, LC3A after just four days increased 22%. So, uh, you know, I, I, we can't, we can't say for sure that a 10% increase in the longevity gene means you're going to live 10% longer or a 22% increase in the cellular recycling means you're going to be 22% freer of disease. Cause that's what happens when these old worn out parts don't get fixed. A lot of them turn into disease. You know, we can't say that for sure. Uh, what we can say is that is an awfully impressive benefit in an awfully short amount of time, not from changing a single thing about what you eat. Her control group ate the exact, literally the exact same food. It was prepared in a lab and they all had to eat every bite of it in front of a technician. The, what they ate didn't change, only moving their eating window to this morning and early afternoon time. Well, what's so interesting is most of us are doing it wrong, myself included. I, I do 16, 8, 18, 6 all the time, but I always generally skip breakfast or start, you know, do something a little 10, 30, 11, but I eat dinner and culturally, I think we eat dinner, but this, this is fairly compelling. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I, you know, I spend some, I go into some length uh, in it in uh, one of the chapters in the book. Um, and yeah, so to, to speak to your listeners who might be, um, thinking the exact same thought that you just expressed, which was the exact same thought that I had too, because as I say in the book, dinner time was my favorite time of day. I love everything about dinner time. I love the smell of garlic as the you know, sun goes down. I love the chopping block chatter with my wife. I, you know, the whole nine yards of it. Um, so culturally, it is very hard. I will say this, I thought, well, I'll make a little experiment of, you know, what Courtney Peterson, it's not just her, other researchers have found uh, similar findings as well that are also very compelling. So I, based on this research, I'll give it a shot. I was stunned. It was the easiest big lifestyle change I had ever made. Um, you know, I, I had often said, well, I don't eat breakfast in the morning because I'm, I'm not hungry. And what I found was, well, that's in fact true if you're still eating at eight o'clock at night. You're still digesting. You don't need breakfast in the morning. However, if you take your last food at two and, you know, you start your eating at eight in the morning and your last food at two in the afternoon, by eight the next morning, you're hungry again. And lo and behold, after 30 years of not being a breakfast person, all of a sudden, who knew I'm a breakfast person? Um, and the, the difficulty, of course, is a lot of us have jobs. Like, I'm very lucky. I work at home. So I give some tips in the book about, you know, how, how one might make this work, but it is going to be very challenging for someone who, you know, works a nine to five job. And, and here's what I say, because I do get a lot of questions about this. I say, look, there, there is a compromise here. The most important piece of it is to stack the calories early. So if you're still eating dinner later, just do what they do in Spain. What's interesting, Spain is one of the countries like right behind Japan and they're about to pass Japan that has the longest longevity in the world, right? Um, just an incredible you know, lifespan there. How, how are they doing it? Don't they eat dinner at nine o'clock at night? What's going on, right? Uh, what you find is, and I had the opportunity to live in Spain for a year, a couple of years ago. It was fantastic. They're eating their huge meal at lunch. They're stacking their calories early. Dinner is just a little snack. 
So for people who still want to eat dinner, what I say is, you know, the most important thing to do is to make sure that you're getting your calories early, the majority of your calories early in the day. That seems to be where the research is pointing. And there's actually, I'll just take a little quick sidebar here to say there's a, there's a great study. It was a weight loss study that was done out of Israel. And it took these obese homemakers and put them on a calorie restricted diet. I think it was like 1400 or 1500 calories to get them to lose weight, but it gave them two eating regimens. One of them where they took 70% of their calories at breakfast and lunch, and another where they took 55% of their calories at breakfast and lunch and then the rest at dinner. So just a 15% difference in whether you're stacking more calories at breakfast and lunch versus eating more calories at dinner. What they found was, without changing what these people were eating, they were instructed to eat roughly the same stuff, exactly the same stuff, though they made the caveat is they made the food themselves, so there may have been a little bit of variation, but without changing what they ate, just changing when they ate it, the group that took 70% of their calories at breakfast and lunch lost more weight, blood pressure went down, had better biomarkers. Off the top of my head, I don't remember. I think cholesterol and a few other things. So the power of moving your calories earlier in the day and minimizing, if you can't eliminate it, minimizing how much you're eating late is uh, worth considering. It's definitely worth considering. And it leads me to my next question. If you're, if you're practicing this type of fasting, there's your eating window. And I'm curious specifically, what have you found that we should eat coming out of a fast? Because, you know, if you're fasting, if you want to realize the benefit, you, I'm assuming probably don't want to consume a diet of, of Twinkies and bologna. Uh, so let's talk about what you found in terms of foods that help you ease out of a fast, whether it's 8 a.m. or for people who want to still do their fasting where it's 11 or noon, and then more generally around diet, if you're going to incorporate intermittent fasting as part of your lifestyle. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a very long conversation. I know you've had whole podcasts with people that, about it. You could probably do a 12 podcast series on this and not run out of things. Give to me say. a short version of what you found. Of course. So one place where I differ from a lot of people in what might be called the fasting community is a lot of people who do fasting um, do a ketogenic or keto-like diet. Um, the idea, which I think makes you know great intuitive sense, is, well, if you go into ketosis when you fast, which is, you know, you break down your fat, you're burning ketones, um, which are the byproducts of your broken down fat, that's ketosis. If you go into ketosis when you're fasting and that's healthy, well, wouldn't it be healthy to, you know, maintain ketosis as long as possible? Um, it's an understandable thought. I just haven't find, found the science to support it. Uh, in fact, I've, I find the science very troubling uh, uh, on the other end of it. We have, um, we have no long-term studies of people on the ketogenic diet. Um, but we have short and midterm studies and they come up with terrible biomarkers. Uh, I mean, I should say you can lose some weight. Uh, your blood pressure will often improve. There will be one or two other biomarkers that will do better when you get off the standard American diet, which is the worst diet you could devise and get onto a ketogenic diet. There are improvements that can happen. However, your cholesterol is going to shoot up. Your arteries are going to, you know, harden. Uh, you may be deficient in various vitamins and minerals. Your 
your markers for cardiovascular disease, stroke, heart attack, dementia, kidney disease, diabetes, they all go up on, on these uh, super high-fat diets. That's just incontrovertible. So the ketogenic combination with fasting um, really uh, concerns me, and I have a lot of, uh, frankly, a lot of fear from my friends who are doing that. So what is right? Um, to me, uh, the most convincing science um, does argue very strongly for a minimally processed vegan diet. Um, and it's certainly what I found was most helpful for my help. And, you know, we could talk about lab studies. We could talk about randomized controlled trials. To me, though, the most compelling studies um, are actually the observational studies of just who is living the longest. And there are many of these. Um, Dan Buettner's Blue Zones point to people who follow a vegan to vegetarian or uh, maybe very minimal meat flexitarian kind of diet. Um, one of the most compelling to me are the Adventists two studies. And, and in those studies, they break out. So the Adventists are a pretty homogenous group, and that's really useful for researchers. You know, you've got a, a group of people who basically, for the most part, don't smoke, don't drink, do a reasonable amount of exercise, live sort of the same lifestyle. So it makes it great to make comparisons within this group. And you've got meat eaters, you've got lacto-ovo vegetarians, you've got vegans. And when you look both at the longevity of these groups and the frequency of various diseases, whether it's prostate cancer, breast cancer, you know, cardiovascular disease, you name it, it's just like a stepwise progression. You know, the ones who are eating meat are the ones who are getting the most of these diseases and living the shortest. The vegetarians doing a little bit better. The vegans doing the best. And the research that, um, you know, we've referred to him often here, Alan Goldhammer uh, has been doing at the True North Health Center in Northern California is based in large part on, um, but not exclusively, but on the work of T. Colin Campbell, who's the author of the China study and, um, and similar authors. I mean, you can find all this stuff very well summarized by Dr. Michael Greger on his Nutrition Facts website. You can find it in the work of Dr. Neil Bernard or Caldwell Esselstein or Dr. Dean Ornish. You know, go, go down the list of all these vegan doctors and researchers. Walter Longo, who we've talked about, uh, takes a nearly similar view. He allows some fish. Um, and what they have all found is that, simply, simply put, the incidence of disease rises with more animal products and more highly processed foods. So in short, it's, it's a plant-based Mediterranean diet. And I just want to make the distinction because there are a lot of junk food vegans out there. And, 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 and this does not mean, this is not the impossible burger diet. This is heavily 80 to 100% plant-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, em emphatically so. And I, and I, my, my sense from the science, and I will say that this, this is my sense. We don't have a, it's not a slam dunk, but I think it's pretty close. Is you know, a hundred percent plants would be better than eighty percent plants. And you're absolutely right. The minimally processed part is fine. You can turn your soybeans into tofu. You can turn your almonds into almond milk, but you can't turn stuff into Twinkies and Ding Dongs and and Coke and get this kind of result. If you look at you know, there's intermittent fasting and then you've got real fasting, so to speak. You seem like a healthy, fit guy. How do you practice after doing all this research? Are you a daily? It sounds like from intermittent, you're daily, but you do the morning, the morning and afternoon rather than the afternoon and evening eating. But I'm curious 
on, on the, the water fast or the pure fast front, do you incorporate that now into your wellness routine as a proactive health measure or, or not? Yeah, absolutely. I do both. So I, I do a time-restricted feeding window, a daily fast, where I eat between, you know, roughly nine and three or eight and two most days. Um, and there's some flexibility. You know, if we're having friends over who are used to eating dinner, I'll eat dinner. I just won't eat a huge dinner. Uh, I spent most of July and August this summer um, backpacking across parts of Colorado. Um, if you're out walking 25 miles a day up and down mountains, um, you know, at six in the evening, your body's going to call out for food. So, um, so my eating window on the trail was probably more like, you know, 10 hours or so rather than six hours. Um, so I am flexible about it, but in general at home each day, uh, it's a six hour eating window in the morning, starting a couple hours after I wake up and for the rest of the day, it's just water. Um, and then once to, to maybe as many as three times a year, I will do a prolonged water only fast. Uh, of anywhere from one to two weeks. Wow. Having some experience with that, um, I have a pretty good sense that I know what I'm doing. Now, if I go over a week, um, I would like to be under medical supervision while I'm doing that. So I'll either go to a fasting clinic or there are places that will you know, supervise you, not many of them, but a few, they're on my website, um, by telehealth. Um, so remotely, so you can fast at home. Um, and I should, I should add here as a caution, uh, and I, I uh, say very strongly in the book, uh, fasting doctors are divided about how long it is safe for a person to fast on their own, but they all completely agree um, that no one should fast unsupervised at home on water only for more than a week. And if you are sick, if you have a diagnosis, if you are on medications that any kind, you shouldn't fast unless you're under medical supervision. If from my limited understanding, I think 72 hours is probably like the starter kit, if you will, for someone who wants to do a water only fast, always consult with your doctor, obviously, but like do so probably solo and you're probably going to be okay if you do the 72 hour water. Is that safe to say? That's probably a good place to start for someone who's listening and health forward and already does IF and doing all the good things that we we do here. If you are in fact completely, you know, healthy, then then yes. Um, the catch is there are a couple groups of people. They're truly tiny groups, but um, who cannot handle fasting. They have one group has a disorder where they cannot process ketones, they can't use their fat as fuel. So when they run out of their glucose and their stored glycogen, which is just stored glucose, after a day or so, they get into trouble. Um, there's another group of people who um, can't burn uh, protein um, for fuel, which is important because when you're making the transition from burning glucose, as your body normally does, to burning fat, which it does on a fast, you don't get to that fat burning stage completely until two to four days into your fast, in, in there you burn some protein. Now, people always freak out about this and imagine their muscles shrinking. That's not what's going on. We have protein in every cell in our body. It's just everywhere. And so, um, you know, it's, it's this stuff that's getting used up and it doesn't seem to be harmful in the least. It gets replaced by new healthy protein. But the point is, after the fast, but the point is, is that you're, um, 
you have to burn some protein during the stage. And there's some people who, when they burn the protein, can't process the byproducts of that. So these people who can't burn fat, can't burn protein, can end up in a coma. Um, some of them can die. Um, so, you know, if, uh, if you don't have conditions like that, sure, yeah, you can fast for 72 hours and it's not going to hurt you. Um, but, uh, you know, that's why, that's why fasting doctors are divided. Some doctors say no one should ever fast for more than 24 hours on their own. Others say, look, this, these conditions are so rare. Most people who have them know they've got them. Most people can fast five to seven days on their own. If they're healthy, no diagnoses, no medications. Yeah. I think I'm looking at my, I, I use one of the fasting apps here of fasting. I think, I think my, I think I clocked in at 28 hours once. I think that was the, the longest I went. Just for no apparent reason, I just started doing it. I was like, oh, let's see how long we can go. And then when I got to 28, I was like, I'm really hungry. I'm done. Uh. <laughs> and one, one caution that fasting doctors sometime give, sometimes give is if you, are, you know, if you just want to experiment and sort of see what it's like to go 72 hours without food, fine. You know, like that's probably just not a problem at all. You might not want to do that length as a regular thing for the protein burning reason I mentioned. So they're like, look, you know, it's absolutely worth burning those proteins if you get to some of the deep repairs at day four or five, six, when you're really in ketosis. But it makes much more sense to do a five, six, seven day fast than to do a two, three, four day fast where you may be causing yourself some metabolic, you know, turmoil, but not really getting to those deeper, deeper repairs that would make all that turmoil worthwhile. So Clearly, there's a lot of exciting science that, that's early in terms of intermittent fasting and fasting. I'm curious, if, if you had to prioritize and wave your magic wand and, and someone at the NIH could, could fund one study, what would be the study you would say, I would love this to be funded? Oh, boy, you're just... Uh you know, ripping my heart apart because there are so many that need to be, need to be funded. You know, I would say, um, the biggest, well, the biggest study that should probably be funded would be randomized controlled trials to prove some of the things that doctors have already, um, proven well enough to their, their own, you know, satisfaction and to their patient's satisfaction in fasting clinics. And the example that I would give would be that blood pressure study. You know, we, we have a cure for something, a, a, a disease, we seem to have a cure, I should say, for a disease that affects more than 100 million Americans that leads to five, you know, that high blood pressure leads to 500,000 deaths a year. Um, how about we do a randomized control st study to probably verify to prove, but if not to disprove, if that's the way the science goes, what we seem to already know, which is that we have a cure, do it in a way that would be acceptable to doctors and then disseminate it so that every, you know, practice in the country uh, is aware that there is in fact an alternative out there. Now, many people won't take it. They'll prefer to take the pills and whatever, but it needs to be available to people who would uh, you know, like to actually cure their blood pressure, not just mask the problem with these drugs that have awful side effects. Well, hopefully the powers that be are listening and we can make some real change. Steve, thank you so much. It's been uh, a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. <laughs>